passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, This morning, we're going to continue working our way through the book of Genesis, and uh, we're in Genesis chapter 43. Uh, Genesis 43 focuses, we're going to spend our our time just on the first 14 verses, and these first 14 verses really focus on uh, Jacob. If you've been with us for a while, you uh, may recall that we've been working uh, our way through the life of Jacob really since like last uh, April, May, something along those lines. It's a very big part of the book of Genesis. And, and over the last couple of weeks, month or so, we've taken a break from that and spent some time looking at uh, Joseph and uh, Jacob's other sons. Uh, but now we come back to Jacob. And we see Jacob is in a crisis in his life. And this is a very important, a very big crisis facing him. And and, and Jacob's an interesting character. I say Jacob is interesting because as we follow his life through the book of Genesis, we see a lot of ups. We see Jacob burn brightly among his generation as a beacon of God's grace. And even as there are some ups, there's also a fair share of downs. There are times where he expresses and shows his faults, his failures. And honestly, as we look at Jacob, as we look at all these ups and downs, we can be left scratching our head about what is going on with this man. Maybe as, as we've worked our way through the book of Genesis and we've looked at him, you can be left kind of uh, just fed up with him. Fed up with the the double-mindedness of one minute he's following God, the next minute he is cheating his way out of this or that. And you might be asking the question, why? First, why on earth is God sticking with this man? Why is God patient with him when it seems like Jacob learns? And the answer to that question is really the answer that we've hopefully come back to each and every week as the foundation for the entire book of Genesis, and that is the reason why this book is written. And what is that? Why is God faithful with Jacob? Is because that's who God is. Jacob is a, is a testament to God's faithfulness, that God is faithful even in the midst of our own unfaithfulness, because that is who God is. God's faithfulness to Jacob does not depend on Jacob's commitment to him. God's faithfulness to us does not com- depend on our commitment to God. It doesn't matter how far you may feel from God. Your commitment, God's commitment to you does not depend on your commitment to Him, on your faithfulness. Instead, it depends on Christ's faithfulness to us. That God has been faithful to us, and that's why God sticks with Jacob. God is a gracious God. He's a faithful God because that is who he is. But even as we ask this question of why does God stick with Jacob, we're probably also left asking the question, well, why does Jacob never learn? After all, how thick is this guy that it never seems to sink in for him? And that's the question that we're really going to be focusing on this morning. Why does Jacob never learn? As we look at this passage, we're going to see the reason why Jacob is so hot in one moment and so cold in the following is because he is a man that is consumed with spiritual blind spots. 
He's consumed with spiritual blind spots. He continues to mess up. He continues to chase after his idols. And he continues to turn his back on God because of these spiritual blind spots. And you might be saying, well, what exactly is a spiritual blind spot? Well, when you're in a car, a blind spot is is a part or an area surrounding the car where you're not able to see clearly or, or at all because there's something that is blocking your view. I think very similarly, when it comes to spirituality, spiritual blind spots are are areas of our lives that we can't see clearly because there's something that is blocking our view or distorting our view. As Christians, it's critical for all of us to admit that we are susceptible to these blind spots. All of us have spiritual blind spots in our lives that crop up all the time because we are influenced by our culture. And we are influenced by our personal experiences. Just a couple examples. Seventy years ago or so, uh, it was very common in the church to completely condemn uh, and to prohibit interracial marriage. Christians thought that this was an abomination to God, and especially Christians in the South here in the United States. They thought that they had biblical backing for this. And these Christians, and and I want to be clear, they were God-fearing, saved by grace through faith kind of Christians just like us. They thought that this type of marriage, interracial marriage, was prohibited. They might be saying, well, why? Why is that? Well, the truth is they were influenced more by their culture. They were influenced more by systemic prejudices of living in the Jim Jim Crow pre-civil rights era of the United States. This was a spiritual blind spot for them. It was a time where people missed the truth because they were blinded by their culture. It was a spiritual blind spot. Same can be said of Christian support of slavery throughout the ages. There are wonderful God-fearing men and women who we are going to meet in the new heavens and the new earth who owned slaves. Some of the most respected theologians in church history are guilty of being slave owners. You might say, why? It's because they are more influenced by their culture, more influenced by personal experience than they were by the gospel in this particular area. And because of that, they were grievously wrong. Another example that's a little less close to home here in the United States. Uh, Christians, if you have ever been on a mission trip, Christians in indigenous Africa, uh, indigenous Asia, can sometimes struggle with the veneration or the uh, near worship of their ancestors. They're not necessarily worshiping them, but they exalt them to a place in their lives that is frankly unhealthy and downright unbiblical. They love Jesus. They love the kingdom. They want to do everything they can to spread the kingdom of God. But this is a spiritual blind spot. It's caused by their culture. Blind spots are everywhere. But it's not just from our culture as a whole. It's also from personal experience. When I grew up, I grew up in a Christian home. I didn't fully embrace the gospel until I was in high school, but, but growing up in a Christian home undergirded my life with this, uh, with this years of exposure, exposure to the Bible. And after I became a Christian, it actually took quite a bit of time for me to realize that not everyone came from this same sort of background. God had to teach me patience. God had to teach me acceptance because I thought that everyone who had a vibrant faith would have the same sort of biblical knowledge at their disposal as I did. 
God had to remind me, had to reveal to me this spiritual blind spot that not everyone thinks the same way that I do. Not everyone has had the same lifelong exposure to the Bible that I have. This isn't a criticism of one side or the other, but it is a a way that God taught me to have patience because of a spiritual blind spot that was caused by personal experience. Now, if we were to take some time and, and look at our lives, we would see that all of us have these sorts of blind spots because every single one of us, when we look at the Bible, we read it with different colored glasses. We read it through the glasses or the lenses of our culture as well as through our experience. And so if we want to overcome our blind spots, the key to do that is to get another set of glasses. In other words, we have to find someone who has a different culture, comes from a different background, and we'll see very quickly that they look at the Bible differently. They have a different perspective on the Bible than we do. I'm going to be honest with us. This is especially important for our church. I want you to take a moment and I want you to look around. Look to your left, look to your right. Look to the people who are sitting right next to you, who are down the aisle, who are on the other side of the auditorium. As a whole, our church is relatively homogenous. We are overwhelmingly white. We are overwhelmingly middle class. There are some exceptions to that. But as a whole, we are relatively the same. Now, we have different pasts and different experiences. I recognize that. But also, we all have a relatively similar culture. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with our gathering. But it is, and it should be, a warning to us. Research shows that the more homogenous a church is, the more similar a church is, the more susceptible that church is to spiritual blind spots. I might be saying, well, why? Why is that? The reason is because we share so much in common culturally that we can mistake our cultural assumptions, assumptions for assumptions of the Bible. We can sometimes blur the lines and cross into things that are relatively unhelpful from a scriptural standpoint because of our similarities with one another. A number of churches that are much more diverse, they, they have a lot more problems in some areas, but one of the benefits of that, of the messiness of living in those contexts, is that they have a much easier time identifying blind spots because there are different people with different sets of glasses to point those out to them. And it's in this context of spiritual blind spots, of this recognition that we look at our life experiences and the Bible with different cultural lenses that we approach the journey of Jacob. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis 43. This is a passage that reminds us, reminds us honestly of our lives, of all the ups and all the downs that we can experience in our lives. If you've been following us through Jacob's life, and we start back in Genesis 25, way before even Gen- or before Jacob was born, Jacob had a prophecy about him. Jacob was a twin, and before he was born, God revealed to his parents that he was the chosen one, that the line of Abraham would continue through Jacob and not through his brother Esau. And as we encounter Jacob for the first time, Genesis chapter 25, we see something positive here. We see a lot of negative too, but we see something positive as we encounter adult Jacob. See, Jacob desires to be a part of God's promise. He wants to be a part of God's promise. 
This is in contrast to his brother Esau, who's too focused on the present to care much at all about the things of God. And so we should give credit where credit is due. Jacob wants to be a part of God's plan. He wants to be a part of God's plan to save humanity. But we also see the first hint of a spiritual blind spot here because of the cause, because of strife and the history of his family. You see, Jacob, even though he wanted to be a part of God's plan to save humanity, thought that he had to take things into his own hands to get the promise that he so desperately wanted. His blind spot was not that he didn't want anything to do with God. His blind spot was thinking that he had to be the one to accomplish all that God had promised him. We see this exact same thing in Genesis chapter 27 when Jacob deceives his father and his brother and steals his father's blessing. Jacob was a man who thought the ends justified the means in order to accomplish God's purposes in his life. Right after Genesis chapter 27, we see that Jacob, in his deceit, leaves his family kind of just scratching their heads and they want to get rid of him. And we can be scratching our heads as well. How can this man be the father of the nation Israel? And then we get to Genesis chapter 28. In Genesis 28, Jacob encounters God at Bethel. God reveals himself to Jacob and says, I will be with you. No matter what comes your way, I will be your God. And Jacob responds and Jacob says, I will follow you. And then he throws a butt in there. He says, I'll follow you, God, but only if you come through for me. Jacob, complex character. When he's doing something foolish, when he's doing wicked things, like in Genesis 25, Genesis 27, there's still a, a, a glimmer of good in his life. Jacob, when he's on the mountaintop experience of spirituality with God, even in those times we see a calculated man who is agreeing to God, God's plan only if he gets something out of them. And it continues on in, in chapter 29 through 31, and you would think that after encountering God, encountering God... Jacob would walk away a changed man, but that's not what we see. We see that Jacob is at his uncle Laban's property. He's not changed all that much. He's superstitious. He's vengeful. After years of being under his uncle's thumb, he he takes his chance to get back at his uncle and runs away with his family in the middle of the night without even saying goodbye to him. This is a man who has been blessed by God, is extremely successful by God. The text tells us that. And you would expect that as a, as a man who has experienced all these blessings from God, that he would walk confidently with God, that he would trust God, but instead he runs away in the middle of the night. Then we get to chapters 32 and 33, and Jacob's on his way home. He's on his journey, and then God reveals himself to Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God, and we would think that this would be another life-changing moment. In one sense, it is. In one sense, it is a life-changing moment because Jacob has his hip dislocated and it remains, he remains with a limp for the rest of his life. But from a spiritual perspective, we see that Jacob leaves much to be desired. Yes, Jacob reconciles himself with his brother Esau, but he doesn't move back to the promised land like God said. He doesn't follow God wholeheartedly. Instead, he lives just outside of the promised land. This is really a powerful picture of Jacob's entire life. 
Jacob is a man who wants to be close to God, who wants to follow God, but he doesn't want to be fully invested. He still wants to hold on to some for his own plans and his own benefits and his own desires. And then we get to Genesis 34 and we see the disastrous consequences of his decision to not fully follow God. He lives just outside the city of Shechem, and this leads to the rape of his daughter and his sons in revenge, slaughtering and pillaging an entire city. And Jacob, what's worse, instead of being mad at them, he just shrugs. And the text tells us he's afraid that something's going to happen to him by the Canaanites. He only cares about himself. This is a pitiful man. It's a picture of a pitiful man. He's supposed to be the blessing to all the nations, and instead... He brings a curse upon them. Genesis 35 is the last chapter up to this point that really just focuses on Jacob. I wish it was the last chapter of Jacob's life, if I'm going to be completely honest. Genesis 35, Jacob is still content living outside of the will of God. It's not until God intervenes, he comes and speaks to him, that Jacob decides, okay, it's time to fall in line. This man travels to Bethel. He fulfills the vow that he made to God decades earlier. He buries all the false gods that he worships. We would think that this is a a good moment, but, but unfortunately, things don't end there. I wish it did. I wish that this was a happy ending. It would show the victory over sin, even decades long sin, when it's possible for us to return to God no matter what. I kind of wish that Jacob would fade out of history, that he was faithfully living out the rest of his days following God, teaching his children how to follow God. I wish that he left a lasting legacy of God's grace and his faithfulness, just like his grandfather Abraham. But all too often, life does not work that way. When we grow old, wisdom can come. Generosity can come, but it's just as possible for bitterness to come as well, for spite to come. And regrettably, that's what we see from Jacob in chapters 42 and 43 of Genesis. I'm going to be candid with you. Preaching the life of Jacob has been extremely trying. When I preach, I I try to end a a sermon on grace and how that grace leads to lasting change in our lives. You know, a real good pick-me-up kind of of moment of God's incredible grace and how that transforms us. That's my hope and prayer for my own life. It's my hope and prayer for my family's life and for every one of you that your lives would be transformed by grace. But that's not what we see in Jacob's life. Jacob is a man who takes three steps forward and then he takes two steps back. Sometimes Jacob takes two steps forward and then three steps back. Sometimes Jacob is stuck in neutral. This is a man who is completely complicated, who never loses his desire for the promises of God on one hand. And yet, if we're honest, we can say that he's never really fully committed to what that means for his life. And as I'm reflecting on all of Jacob's life, this journey of Jacob up to this point, I think there's one thing that we can learn. Really, it's important for us as well. Life is often messier than we would like to think. Life is often messier than we would like to think. If I'm honest, my life looks a whole lot more like Jacob's life than I want it to. Where I'm taking three steps forward and two steps back, or sometimes two steps forward and three steps back. Following God is messy, and I think all of us can relate to that. 
When we hear the, about the ups and downs of, of Jacob's life, the times where he's moving forward or the times where he's stuck in neutral, we can think, hmm, that sounds a whole lot more like me than I would like to admit. Life is messier than we like to think. But I think that these words can also be a word of assurance for us as well. You see, the messiness of Jacob's life, the messiness of your life, when you are backsliding or when you are stuck in a rut, when you have turned your back on God, the times that we keep running away from God or we keep running back to the same old sin or or a new sin in order to fill the void of our old sin, all of these things, God's faithfulness in the midst of that is an assurance of grace. Friends, we can be assured of God's grace. We can rest in that grace because Jacob's life is a clear picture that our salvation does not depend on our own efforts, does not depend on our own merits. That does not excuse the junk in Jacob's life, in your life or my life. But it is an assurance, isn't it? You see, if our salvation rested on our own merit, if it rested on a certain amount of quota that we had to grow X amount before the end of our lives spiritually, I think we would be in trouble. The messiness of life is a reminder of God's grace. And it is that messiness that we see in chapter 43. Let's start in verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? And they replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you still have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. If you remember from last week, famine is spreading all over the land, uh, really the entire known world at this time. And Egypt is the only place where there is grain. Because God has providentially provided for the people of Egypt. Famine is spreading throughout the entire land. And where these people are living in Canaan, it gets worse and worse. And it's been months, maybe even years, since the first time they went to Egypt to buy grain. They returned with grain. That's the good news. But they also returned with some bad news. They had been suspected as spies. And what's worse, they had a son that was imprisoned. And they were not allowed to return until Benjamin came with them. And Jacob just assumed, probably rightfully, that, or justifiably at least, Jacob assumed that something would happen to Benjamin, and so he refuses to let them bring him back to Egypt. 
Even though that means one of his other sons, Simeon, has to rot in prison because he did not let Benjamin go. And now they're out of food. The only way for them to get food is for the sons to return to Egypt before they all die. But Judah steps forward and says, hey, dad, we can't go back. We can't go back unless you let us bring Benjamin. The man made it very clear that we were not allowed to see his face, that we would not be able to get grain without Benjamin. Now remember, Jacob loves Benjamin more than any of the rest of his brothers. This is his favorite son. This is one that he holds tightly and he refuses to let go of him. And now Jacob is in a bit of a dilemma. If he lets Benjamin go, there's a chance he's going to lose him. The trip to Egypt is dangerous. What's more than that, they were suspected as spies and thieves. And letting him go meant that he would risk losing him forever. But on the other hand, if Benjamin does not go, then all of them will run out of food. They will surely die. It's not just risking Benjamin. All of them, all of them. Sons, grandchildren, himself, all of them would die. The promise that Jacob had cherished for so much of his life, that he had done anything, including sin, to keep a hold of, he would lose that promise. Unless he let go of Benjamin. Do you see what Benjamin is to Jacob? Benjamin is Jacob's blind spot. He is Jacob's blind spot. Jacob can't see how consumed with Benjamin he is and how that has blinded him to everything else. You see, Benjamin isn't just his son. Benjamin is his idol. He refuses to let go of him, even if that means that Simeon, another one of his children, rots in prison. The rest of this passage actually assures us that Jacob isn't thinking even of Benjamin's safety. He's only thinking about his own grief his own sorrow that he will experience loses Benjamin. This is a man who is idolatrous, who has a blind spot when it comes to Benjamin. You might be saying, well, why, why do I say that this is a blind spot? Why, why not just say that this is an idol? Because I, I think that Jacob is still not trusting God to accomplish God's promise on his own terms. Let me explain this. Joseph and Benjamin were two of, uh, of Jacob's sons, and they were the only two that were born to Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. Remember, Jacob had wanted to marry Rachel, but then he had been tricked into marrying Leah. He had ten sons from Leah and two other women, but Rachel was barren. And thankfully, she in, er, thankfully, God intervened and she bore two children, Joseph and Benjamin. Now, from, jo- from Jacob's perspective, he, he's thinking of his grandfather, Abraham. Remember, Abraham, uh, when we looked at his life, Abraham had a child with a woman he didn't love because his wife was barren. And that child was not the child of the promise. It wasn't until the miraculous child of Isaac that the promise was fulfilled. His parents, Isaac and Rebekah, had also been barren for years, and it wasn't until God miraculously intervened again and gave birth, and Rebekah gave birth to two children, that Jacob was born. 
And Jacob was chosen to be the one who would carry God's promise, the miracle child. Now, Jacob has 12 sons. Ten of them are from women that he does not love. Two of them are from Rachel, his loved one, who was barren. Do you see the parallels here that between Jacob's life and Abraham's life and Isaac's life? Why is it that Jacob loves Joseph and Benjamin more than the rest of them? Because he thinks that one of them is the son of promise. He thinks that one of them is the one that God has chosen to save all of humanity through and assumes that this is Joseph. But now Joseph has been gone for decades and Benjamin is all that he has left. To let go of Benjamin was to let go of his control over God's promise. To let go of Benjamin was to place the promise back in God's hands. And Jacob has shown us time and time again that that is not something that he is willing to do. Jacob's primary issue is a blind spot cultivated by decades of experience in his family's history. He does not understand that God has a sovereign plan and that God is able to work things out for good no matter what. Because he is committed to Jacob and to Jacob's family. This is a blind spot because he thought that he was the one who had to come through for God. And that leads Jacob to a pretty difficult situation. A pretty difficult situation. It leads Jacob to actually blame his sons for this situation. But thankfully, Judah shows himself to be a leader. And we're going to look at Judah a little bit more next week. He pledges for Benjamin's safety. Jacob is is found in a tough spot. What is Jacob going to do? Is he going to let go of his idol? Is he going to recognize his blind spot, his inability to fill God's promises or to take care of God's promises on his own? What can we learn from Jacob's life here? What can we learn from blind spots and our refusal to let go of idols? I think it's simply this. Holding on to idols stunts our spiritual growth. Holding on to idols stunts our spiritual growth. Why is it that Jacob's journey was so messy? It's because he refused to let go of his idols. Now you might be saying, well, what about Genesis chapter 35? In Genesis 35, it says this. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of distress. And they had been with me for wherever I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. How can you say, Jordan, that this is a man who holds on to his idols when Jacob shows us very clearly in Genesis 35 that he has gotten rid of his idols? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Look at your own life. Look at your own life. How many times have you had an idol or a sin that you vowed never to come back to, and yet you find yourself back just weeks, months later, right where you were? Or how many times you put to death an idol or a sin only to have it crop up again as something else? The idol takes on a different head because you forgot to kill the root. Jacob here may have gotten rid of his false god. He might have gotten rid of his little trinkets and his images. But he had not gotten rid of his lack of trust 
in God. And so his idolatry crops up in the life of Joseph and in the life of Benjamin after him. The same thing is true in our own lives. When we hold on to our idols, it stunts our spiritual growth. When we get rid of surface idols, but we don't address the root cause of our idolatry, we will replace a false worship of one idol with a false worship of another idol. The only way to replace idolatry, to get rid of idolatry in our lives, is to kill the root, to replace false worship with true worship. Because idols will return. They may look different, but if the root is still there, they will return and they will stunt our spiritual growth. So here's the thing. The decision that's facing Jacob may seem like a no-brainer to us. It may seem like a no-brainer because it's not our spiritual blind spot. It may seem completely obvious that Jacob has to let go of Benjamin in order to save the entire family, in order to save the promise that God has given him. It's easy for us to recognize that because it's not our idol. If all of our struggles were recorded in the Bible for everyone else to see, I would venture a guess that many people would be left scratching their heads as they looked at all of the idols that I struggle with. They'd be left scratching their heads and saying, why is that so hard for him to let go of? Why why can't he clearly see that the obvious answer is right in front of him? These decisions seem so much simpler for others when they are nearly impossible for us because of our own battles. A dilemma is facing Jacob. How will he respond? The rest of the text tells us. Pick up in verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to this man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. You see, sometimes God puts us, just like Jacob here, in spots where we have to choose. And it's not between things that we like, but it's between suffering or or hardship. In Jacob's place, it is the choice between putting his idol to death or death itself. And sometimes God uses the same tactics in our lives. God sometimes uses hardship. God sometimes uses pain. He uses suffering, difficult seasons in order to break the grip of idols and blind spots in our lives. And you might be saying, well, why? Why is it that God acts this way? I think it's simply this, because God cares more about our spiritual growth than we do. God cares more about our spiritual growth than we do. Like Jacob, all too often we are content living in comfort. We are content living with our blind spots, not addressing them. We are content living with our idol worship because we are only following God half-heartedly. But that's not good enough for God with Jacob, and it's not good enough for God with us. Isaiah 48, God declares this, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is not content sharing the throne of our lives with 
any other person. It doesn't matter if it's our family. It doesn't matter if it's our job, if it's our bank account, even if it's ourselves. God will continue to work on our lives until he sits on our throne and he sits on our throne alone. You see, that's what this text is all about. It's a question that each and every one of us has to answer. Are we content in sin or are we content in him? Are we content in our sin or are we content in God alone? Are we content with the status quo that we experience in our lives of following God half-heartedly from a distance, following God so we can still hold on to our idols? Are we content saying to God that he is on the throne of our lives as long as we get to sit on it from time to time? If we're honest, I think we can all admit that all too often we are content, we are comfortable with exactly where we are right now. Because growth is painful. Growth is hard. It takes dying to self. It takes letting go of things that we love, the things that are often good things. And so we have to ask, are we content in sin or are we content in him? You see, how you answer this question goes a long way in helping you find or identify your spiritual blind spots, your idols, and helping you grow closer to God. It helps us identify our blind spots because uh, really three different questions that we can, that we can use here that, that tie into this. It causes us to reflect when we ask if we are content in God or if we are content with things being the way they are. So three simple questions for us to take this morning and, and to wrestle through in our lives. First one is this. What are your spiritual blind spots? What are your spiritual blind spots? What are you missing, oftentimes unintentionally, because you are more influenced by our culture, shaped by our culture and personal experience, rather than by the Bible? For some of us, it might be a tendency to compartmentalize our discipleship. We are content following God in many areas of our lives, but in some areas we continue to hold on to. What if we let God rule over every area of our life and the ways that we interact with our children, the ways we interact with our finances, the way we respond to the news today, the way we respond and interact with the poor, our interactions with others. For others, it's your your family. Just like Jacob, many of us make our lives all about our family rather than about God. And we think that this is justified based off of the Bible. And still for others... Our spiritual blind spot is our view of suffering. What if we saw how God was shaping us through our suffering rather than seeing it as something to just avoid at all cost? What if we saw our hardships as something not to waste, but as something that can draw us closer to God? What are your spiritual blind spots? Second, are you content with your blind spots? Are you content with your blind spots? If we're honest... Our blind spots and our idols are are comfortable. Be honest with yourself on this. It's easy to live with them because it's comfortable and it does not force us to grow. And so ask, am I content? Do I really want to know what my blind spots are? Do I really want to know what my idols are? Am I content with where I am at? Because if I want to live with my blind spots and idols, it's easy. But if I don't want to live with them, then it takes a difficult change. I must be willing to listen to people that are different than me. 
I must accept that sometimes the way that I make sense of the world is made up and shaped more by my culture than by the Bible. When I hear something, my initial response is just to fully reject something. It's a good time for me to pause and to listen and to put on a different set of glasses because it could be a spiritual blind spot. Not always. Sometimes I'm not the one who has the blind spot. It's someone else. But it should cause me to pause and to listen. Are you content with your blind spots? And the third one is this. How might God be refining you? How might God be refining you? If you are actively trying to find your blind spots, if you're actively trying to get rid of your idols, you will be looking out for the ways that God is at work in your life. Are we content in sin or are we content in him? I'll be honest, too often I, I find myself comfortable. My blind spots, I don't really want to know with them because it just doesn't take all that much work and effort. It's not painful. It doesn't cause me to die to self when I don't have to address my idols. It means that I don't have to do the hard, painful work of giving my entire life to Jesus. But to do so is to settle for second best. And so I would just encourage us all this morning to not be content with where we are. To strive for more of God. To let him rule over more and more areas of our lives. To sit on our throne more and more with each and every day. And let us be a church that finds our contentment in him. And not in the things of this world. Let's pray. Lord, we first of all just ask for wisdom. We ask that you would reveal to us through whatever means necessary, whether that is through hardship like with Jacob or through conversations, interactions with someone from a different perspective, that you would reveal to us the ways that we are more influenced, more formed and shaped by our culture than by you. God, we, we want to cast down all the idols of our lives. Maybe for some of us, we don't want to, but we want to want to. And so, God, we pray that you would be gracious to us. You would refine us. And even as your word says that you would sanctify us in your truth. Be gracious to us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.